from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Hi, and welcome to Psych Health and Safety in Canada. I'm your host, Marianne Baton. The aim of the podcast is to share practical knowledge, tips and strategies around psychological health and safety in workplaces. Each week, I'll have interesting guests from across Canada and indeed from around the world. And they all have something really interesting to share about what psych health and safety is and how we can do a better job of it in our own workplaces. Today, I'm really thrilled to um, welcome a good friend of mine and a colleague, uh, Chuck Bruce, and we spent a lot of time together through the Mental Health Commission of Canada and through the work on the standard, and Chuck always has inspiring ideas and innovations to share with us. So welcome, Chuck. And tell me how a nice accountant like you ended up being so interested in psychological health and safety. Uh, thank you, Marianne. It's great to join you this morning and uh, participate in this important discussion. Um, preparing for our uh, uh, chat today, I reflected on what's approaching 20 years of my experience uh, in mental health <clears throat> and specifically mental health in the workplace, as it was then referred to. Uh, and what brought me into the fold, as you said, my uh, background is purely in finance. And I, uh, 20 years ago, was someone who considered themselves um, uh, uh, very ignorant uh, toward mental health or mental illness um, uh, 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 in, in the sense of uh, no, no background or knowledge. Uh, and when I transitioned from a pure finance role in the financial services industry to a more insurance-related role, uh, it it gave me a sense uh, of looking at um, uh, the, 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 the elements of finance in the new organization and what the drivers were. And of course, as we knew 20 years ago and we know more today, that uh, mental illness, specifically in insurance claims uh, of disability, was a driving force. It was four times any other illness category at the time. And uh, I felt as someone who needed to roll up their sleeves and understand uh, the history behind not only what mental illness was, but what the driving forces were. And uh, that gave me an opportunity uh, really to reach out to then uh, the local uh, Canadian Mental Health Association division to engage in very early discussion to educate me uh, on I will say mental health or mental illness 101. Yeah, and and yet um, knowing you the way that I do, Chuck, you've got this ability to read people, which if we go with the stereotype for an accountant, isn't as usual. Um, but you you really are looking at um, mental illness and mental health as part of the human condition more than you look at it as something that a certain percentage of the population have. Yes, um, um, uh, uh, thank you. I think that was a compliment <laughs> that I'm non, uh, not a stereotypical accountant. Um, and I say that with utmost respect to my fellow CPAs. Um, 
I think when from the first conversation uh, I had uh, sitting across from the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association in um, Nova Scotia, I was drawn into uh, a conversation, I think, uh, like no other uh, I've ever had uh, in my life, and not because I immediately uh, found uh, an attraction to mental illness or mental health, uh, not because I recognized that uh, it uh, was uh, something that friends or family were dealing with, because I've been very cautious in not trying to recognize that because of my lack of any clinical background. Um, but I was drawn into these uh, numbers and statistics around uh, the then one in four and the, or, or the one in five, depending upon the literature. And the more and more I started to understand from a general uh, human population perspective, uh, I, uh, and this may sound funny uh, coming from an accountant, but I pushed the numbers aside. Uh, and I really started to think that this is not a one in four or a one in five. This is a population health issue. And we as Canadians or uh, a, a, a broader audience that may be listening to our chat, um, uh, I think uh, have an obligation to not only understand uh, the um, impact of mental health uh, that we all experience, um, but also to uh, respect mental illness uh, in the context when people are struggling. And I think that brought me into uh, the conversation deeper beyond the financial burden that was my primary reason for reaching out and having the early discussion. Uh, Marianne, to be completely honest, I thought that I would have two or three discussions uh, with people uh, that had a background in mental health and uh, mental illness. Uh, and uh, I would then have a foundational understanding of it. And I would move on then to, you know, do what accountants do, which is analyzing the numbers more. And in what is now um, uh, 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 greater than 20 years uh, of this experience, I continue uh, uh, on, I'll say uh, multiple times throughout every week, being engaged in uh, something, be it reading or a conversation or some of the other work I do in my extracurricular activities that's related to mental health. And uh, I will say my commitment and passion to advancing mental health uh, across this country hasn't wavered since that first conversation. No, and where I first ran into you was when you were tapped to be part of the Workforce Advisory Committee for the brand new Mental Health Commission in Canada. And can you tell us a bit about your experience there? Right, so um, even uh, I think it was within the same year, um, and I'm not sure the order of play, uh, but uh, our mutual friend uh, uh, and uh, now retiree, uh, Mike, uh, who was then the inaugural uh, executive director of the uh, Workplace Strategies for Mental Health, or then I think the Center for Workplace Mental Health, um, the day, and Mike and I laughed about this, the day uh, the uh, center uh, was announced publicly, um, that morning, uh, I used the phone number that was attached to the bottom of the press release uh, and uh, called for some additional information. Uh, and who picked up the phone but Mike? Uh, and that was uh, our initial uh, introduction to one another. 
uh, and and I've enjoyed uh, you know every conversation that I've ever had uh, with him. And I think shortly after that, the Workforce Advisory Committee was formed, uh, and um, uh, I received a call from uh, Bill Wilkerson, uh, who uh, asked if if I would be interested in joining. And I have to say, I was taken aback uh, by uh, the invitation uh, and asked myself early on, uh, what can an accountant bring to that discussion? Um, uh, and um, um, uh, was felt very vulnerable in regard to my lack of knowledge, uh, uh, sitting around a table of very intimidating people such as yourself. <laughs> And, and, and people that had much broader and deeper discussions uh, and experiences, both at a clinical and non-clinical level, uh, even people with lived experience, I hadn't interacted with on a direct basis throughout my lifetime. So I didn't know what value uh, I could bring to that. Uh, and again, the first conversation that uh, we had as a group uh, in the boardroom uh, at uh, Great West Life, uh, when it was your traditional uh, round of introductions and so on. Five minutes into that conversation, I was drawn and felt uh, I'm at the right table. And I'm not sure where this is going to go. I'm not sure what my commitment is going to be or what value I can bring. But I felt comfortable with the group that I was surrounded with. And uh, you know that was 2007. And although we don't talk every day or every week, when we do talk, I feel uh, any of that group, uh, when I do reconnect with, I feel that uh, we've, we've, we've had an experience that only lifelong friends um, uh, uh, can, can, can um, uh, attest to. Yeah, I say that all the time, Chuck, that it's, been such an interesting um, journey because we run into so many people who have their their heart in the right place that the, the reason they're in this is because they care about humans writ large that they care about the quality of life that people have they care about those who struggle and uh, they really want to make a difference and so whenever I hear somebody talk about you know everybody's out for themselves or they're out to get you, I have to shake my head and say, that's not my experience at all. Yeah, we, we get to meet some of the greatest. But the other thing that you brought up that um, imposter syndrome, or as one of my professors said, the, the fear of the fraud squad coming and figuring you're not as smart as everybody else thinks you are. <laughs> is it, Yeah, is, is always there for all of us. And I think that, um, you know, we've had to work with senators, we've worked with um, other politicians, we've worked with clinicians and uh, researchers and, you know, many PhDs, and you start to understand that we're just human and what your credentials are, whether it's CPA or it's something else, has little to do with who you really are. And uh, that's one of the beauties of what we've experienced over the years. So we were with the Workforce Advisory Committee. What are some of the things that you're most proud of accomplishing with that group? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, the, the back in uh, the early days of the Mental Health Commission of Canada, the uh, advisory groups, I believe there were seven, 
uh, established at the onset of the commission's uh, uh, days uh, uh, when it started in 2007. And I think that, that they really formed the foundation of what the Mental Health Commission is today. And uh, they went through, uh, like any new organization, there was a time and a place for that style of advisory group that were very hands-on, roll up your sleeves. I mean, we were, we were volunteer staffers uh, at the end of the day, right? Uh, and, and as the commission continued to evolve, uh, then that model no longer worked um, uh, because the organization had matured. But during, during that time of the Workforce Advisory Committee, I think um, uh, I would have to uh, single out um, uh, uh, absolutely uh, the uh, early uh, work and challenge at that table around how we can have an impact uh, in uh, Canadian workplaces. What do we have to do? And it goes beyond knocking on doors and having conversations at a grassroots level. It has to be at the boardroom level. It has to be uh, at the grassroots level and the accordion has to meet somewhere in the middle. So I think the very, very early discussions uh, uh, that uh, and, and thought provoking uh, dialogue and challenge that ultimately resulted uh, in a standard uh, being created. That absolutely has to be uh, uh, number one. But in addition to that, I think if you look at different aspects of um, the, uh, uh, our population that is either in the workplace or aspires to be in the workplace, uh, I think that uh, was so attractive to me because again, in my lack of knowledge or experiences, I didn't fully appreciate um, the aspiring workforce or the vulnerable community that um, uh, 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 was uh, very committed uh, and you know, since, since then have learned about uh, many organizations uh, that um, uh, have won significant awards from an engagement or a profit or cultural perspective uh, around um, uh, 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 the hiring and attraction and retention of the aspiring workforce. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the work uh, that uh, was developed uh, coming out of the Workforce Advisory Committee related to the aspiring workforce was, was particularly emotional uh, for me in regard to uh, we, can, uh, we can continue to do more uh, for that population group. So I think yeah. those are the two that stand out. I remember Bonnie Kirsch um, would bring forward, well, what about the people that aren't in the workplace yet that, you know, are still struggling to get there, as you say, aspiring. And then she would say, I'm sorry, I'm bringing this up again. And I said to her, no, this is, this is who you are. You're the champion. You need to keep reminding everybody, let's focus on this as well. Because if we don't uh, focus on the most vulnerable, then they just fall by the wayside and, you know, are expected to figure it out themselves. So it's... Yeah, I think uh, between 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 Bonnie Kirsch and uh, Mary Middleton, uh, I think uh, their persistence and patience uh, within uh, the uh, Workforce Advisory Committee uh, really uh, provided uh, an education uh, to the committee that there needed to be a focus 
uh, on the aspiring workforce in addition to only inclusive of workplaces today. Right. And Marie Dansock, right? And Marie, of she, course, as well. Yes. yes. Yeah, they, uh, they did that. Can I ask that? Can I uh, reverse that question to you? Yeah. What, of, is, what, what are you most proud of in, in, in that, uh, that committee's uh, lifespan? Um, well, I think, you know, if we look at the big thing, then it is how we eventually led to the development of the standard. But I think about some of the littler things too, like you brought forward the idea of 20 questions for leaders. And you had talked about um, a series that you had looked at. And so we created it and it's still there on the website. We did 20 questions for unions and it's still there. We did um, policy recommendations, you know, looking at if, if you're looking at your policy through the lens of workplace mental health and psychological health and safety, how would you do that? So I think there are so many things um, that were done, but also that the committee themselves became individual champions with their constituency, wherever they were, whatever they were doing. And so it's almost like I think about Rosa Parks and the idea that she was just one woman on a bus. But when you look into her background, she was part of an advocacy group. She was being trained to think about the issues and to deal with the issues. And it's the same with all of us, is that um, we may look like individually that we just have it all together and we know what we're talking about. But the truth is we came together and we learned together and that's why we're able to do what we do now. So yeah, we, yeah. we, we were such a, such a diverse group from many experiences, um, not only um, uh, personal and professional experiences, but geographic uh, in nature as well. I believe we were coast, truly coast to coast to coast. And I think um, when I reflect on now, now, of course, asking me that question is generating a whole bunch of ideas, right? Uh, and it seems in many ways like it was last month uh, we met, not uh, 15 years ago, or, or I guess not 15 years ago, but 10, say 10 years ago. Uh, and um, I think the other walking into uh, walking into each meeting, you know, you look at, um, uh, of course, uh, uh, for, for significant amount of time of the Workforce Advisory Committee's lifespan, uh, our uh, friend Dr. Ian Arnold uh, le led us uh, to great, uh, great levels of success and uh, looking at an agenda, looking at meeting materials, looking at the objective of meeting. I have to say, I always walked through whatever door we were going into uh, with my own personal objective of um, um, engaging in discussion of um, uh, bringing people to an understanding from an accountant's perspective of we have to be mindful of what the cost of not doing anything is. So we, we, we know what the cost of mental illness is in the workplace, uh, purely from a numbers perspective. So I say a direct cost. We didn't then know the indirect cost related to the impact on humans. But I uh, uh, tried in my, I would say, analytical way of attempting to provide some insight to the rest of the group uh, around, well, what if we don't do something? Because looking at 
uh, large part of the decisions to invest in workplace mental health typically falls to someone that has CPA at the end of their name. And until they understand that it is not an expense line, it is an investment line, um, many workplaces will, will um, not uh, realize their full potential or exercise their full opportunity uh, without understanding uh, what a lack of investment is. And I think we only have to look at uh, the example I use even in today's world, uh, you know, so many years later, is we only have to look at uh, throughout Canada uh, and or uh, uh, around the world and the lack of investment uh, uh, in, in past uh, in infrastructure. And where we are today in Canada, where the US is today and other jurisdictions uh, that have experienced a lack of infrastructure investment uh, over the course of decades and now realizing the burden of that investment that's required today. It's no different when you look at the investment or the other side of, of the equation uh, around an expense of mental health in the workplace. Okay, so you may be sensitive and you may understand workplace mental health and mental health in general, but you still think like an accountant. <laughs> well, I, I, I have to still think like an accountant because Whenever I'm engaged in discussions, when I know there are accountants in the room, I know how they're thinking. Uh, so, so I have to find a way to hoodwink them into understanding that this is an investment and not only an expense line. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I didn't know you at all, we were at the table for the commission's workforce advisory. And I thought you were pretty quiet, but then whenever you opened your mouth to say something, it sort of landed and um, was profound because it was very much from that uh, objective, uh, logical business sense. So it was only after when I uh, got to know you more that I realized how cheeky you actually were and that that was just <laughs> your persona for the board table. But let's, let's move on now to your recollection of how we came to think that we might want a national standard in Canada on psychological health and safety in the workplace? Oh, such a, such a great question. Um, I think that my recollection, um, having gone around uh, the table multiple times and hearing from uh, our uh, peers uh, that again, uh, such diverse backgrounds of people with lived experience, which is we all know and recognize more and more that uh, that voice is required at the table. Uh, we had academia, we had uh, clinicians, uh, we had uh, representation uh, from uh, the military with our good friend Stefan. And um, uh, I think that my recollection was the diversity of thought around um, how, the first thinking around, I will say a guideline versus a standard and a standard versus a guideline. But, but more so than that, when you uh, 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 take, a, take a layer off uh, uh, the onion, I think um, it was uh, purely related to the impact. So how, how can we get inside the doors of organizations 
in uh, different industries across uh, the country. And at that time, I don't think we were looking at anything beyond uh, our country. Um, and you know, uh, who would have known, right? That there would be interest uh, beyond uh, the shores and mountains of Canada. But I think we were initially focused perhaps prematurely on thinking that it would be more accepted or adopted more broadly within a small number of sectors, uh, uh, ideally within the public sector. And I think because of the diversity around the table, we very quickly turned our attention to, well, wait a second, why wouldn't oil and gas consider this? They have the same uh, issues within their workplace as a provincial, federal, or territorial department of government. And then we looked at specific subsets uh, of uh, healthcare and first responders and so on and so forth. And I remember being one of a number of people around the table uh, that as a, a dad to uh, a now 17, soon to be 18 year old, um, uh, it was very important for me. And I know your kids were uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, a lot younger uh, and more dependent on mom than Marianne than they perhaps are today. Um, but I think very important for me was also that next generation uh, of entering the workplace. And I went back to, I read a, a, a book uh, some time ago in preparation of my uh, former uh, uh, role uh, in the insurance and disability sector. And it was a book uh, entitled The North Karelia Project uh, in New Zealand. And this uh, was uh, really around uh, physical health at the time, but it was uh, around changing behaviors. And it was uh, North Karelia, North Karelia is a region in New Zealand. And uh, some time ago, I think it was back in the 70s or 80s, they had a very high uh, rate of uh, um, uh, uh, death in um, uh, 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 sort of, 40 and 50 year olds, very, very young men uh, were dying. And in, in this region at that time, uh, the book was, was, was written, um, the um, uh, 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 females in the household were predominantly uh, mining the house and raising the children, whereas the males were working outside of the home. But they were dying when they were in their 40s and 50s. Of course, then leaving the family uh, in, 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 in turmoil. And the, the, the moral of the story was, uh, the initial thought was uh, to change the behaviors and have the 30 and 40 year olds uh, eating more healthy. So less butter, less fat, more green vegetables and so on. And someone came up with a brilliant idea and said, wait a second, until we introduce healthier lifestyles with our um, infants and toddlers and school age children, we will never change the behaviors and the mortality of those that are older. So very early on uh, in my workforce advisory committee days, I felt an obligation recalling the, the, the framework of that book uh, that uh, we have to do more for our youth uh, starting at a very, very early age. And I think that, um, uh, that further informed uh, some of the work 
uh, that we did when we uh, developed uh, the standard and also considering those that are coming into the workplace at a later time. Yeah, it's, you know, when you think about um, drinking and driving, wearing seatbelts, recycling, um, wearing a helmet when you ride a bike, all those things were aimed at young children. And then those young children influence their parents uh, to make those changes. And so it's, a, it's no different that if we can help children to think about how to honor their feelings, how to honor their emotions, how to be able to process them um, in a healthy way, that it's going to have a positive impact on the mental health when they become adults. But it's uh, also much easier to start young and uh, have children uh, really embody these things rather than wait until we have developed bad habits and then try to break us of them. Oh. Uh, do, you, do, you, do you recall um, our early discussions? I know that this will come back to me during our conversation, but do you recall our earlier discussions around the potential of a standard versus I know we had considerable discussion and debate with respect to a guideline versus a standard. Do you, um, uh, uh, can you share your perspective uh, on how we landed uh, at a standard versus a guideline? Yeah, well, I remember the conversation was that at one point, it would have cost organizations um, about six figures to get a consultant to develop a measurement of psychological health and safety and to administer that, to analyze the results and then to make recommendations. And it was because we had a tool um, in Guarding Minds that was free that we felt that it was reasonable to request organizations to have a minimum threshold. That's what we were thinking at the beginning, a minimum threshold that supported um, the psychological health and safety of its employees. And we wanted it to be um, arm's length and consensus based. So that is where we started with the idea of a standard. Now, Ian Arnold and I actually went to the Canadian Standards um, Council at the time and asked them, well, what's involved? Because we immediately thought, of the International Standards Organization, ISO. So we were already thinking bigger than Canada when we went to check that out. And in fact, when they gave us the requirements for an ISO standard, we reverse engineered everything we were doing in order that we knew we would qualify. And okay. we held a um, round table in Vancouver where we brought together people from standards making organizations, people from the government, policy makers, decision makers. And we really, the question we asked is, should we have a standard? Is that, uh, is that more red tape and a burden for employers? Or is that something that could actually support the evolution of workplace mental health in Canada? And uh, there was good conversation about pros and cons. What we wanted to avoid was making it so difficult for employers to operate or to be profitable 
um, that we were inadvertently damaging their psychological health and safety. But we got enough information from the very wise people that were around the room about how to make a standard in a way that did not um, cause excessive red tape, excessive burden. And uh, yeah, that's, that's my recollection of our long and winding road to where we ended up. Yeah, so again, our conversation is bringing back uh, so many uh, memories, as often conversations do. And I recall, uh, due to, uh, due to uh, family illness I was dealing with at the time, uh, I was unable to participate in that uh, first January, uh, so, sorry, first uh, September event uh, in Vancouver. But uh, what I do uh, recall is uh, the, there was a very diverse group uh, invited and accepted the invitation to participate in that discussion. Uh, and that that was very rich uh, discussion. It was a closed door uh, 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 event, uh, whereas people could speak openly and freely and not have uh, their comments attributed back to an industry or their organization. And uh, those leaders from uh, various, various uh, industries um, uh, had the opportunity to share uh, what, 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 what they felt were advantages, but also what they felt were limitations or restrictions uh, in, in moving that forward. So I think that was extremely rich uh, discussion. And I think as we continue to evolve mental health across the population, uh, I think that that model uh, uh, can and should be repli replicated more often when there are, I think, we have the opportunity today, 15 years later, to have those conversations in a more open forum where um, uh, people are not, leaders uh, are not as uh, concerned about voicing their opinion uh, and having their organization attributed to their opinion, appreciating it is only their opinion. They're not, not necessarily speaking on behalf of the organization, but I think leaders today in the mental health conversation are much, much more open uh, to have that dialogue in a public setting uh, to, to uh, inquire uh, uh, with respect to what, what can and should uh, be done uh, uh, across the land. So I think that was, that was a very early start and um, uh, 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 very visionary uh, in regard to when you look at how mental health and resources available to organizations uh, have become available uh, over the over the course of the last fifteen years. Yeah, you, you know, you're you're making me think of another point that was really interesting, <laughs> is that we started um, really thinking about: Do we need a standard about how to um, treat a person who has a mental illness in the workplace? And that the conversation around that was, no, we have human rights. Like we already have the duty to accommodate. So if we step back and think about protecting all employees, doing no harm to all employees, um, it actually will be protective for those who also have a mental illness. But then it becomes not about those people, but about us people about everyone. And uh, yeah, do you remember, Chuck, the conversation 
about language because again we said should it be the standard for workplace mental health and do you remember why we decided against that um no uh that's 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 not coming back to me quickly no but that was, may be age related as well yeah <laughs> yeah well we do have that going for us but no it was because people when they think mental health will automatically seem to go to mental illness whereas psychological health and safety we thought they would automatically go to health and safety which is the organization's responsibility to do no harm and to protect against harm and adding psychological in front of it instead of mental would mean people would have to say well what do you mean so they had to open their minds to something that was new but yeah, all these little conversations that we had over the years, um, thinking about it and, and how it evolved in little bits. When you think, I mean, we worked so hard on that uh, standard committee. When you think about the contributions that you made um, to that committee, what, what comes up in your mind? Well, I think... Um... I'm not sure, um, uh, again, uh, it was, it, it looked to me, the technical committee established to develop the standard looked to me like the workforce advisory committee multiplied by three or four, uh, because it had, um, uh, 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 you know, six, six or seven subsets of representation, which not by design, but uh, I think by perhaps a little bit of good conversation, good decisions, and a lot of luck, the Workforce Advisory Committee um, uh, ended up being as diverse uh, as it was. I think the technical committee was obviously, for obvious reasons, more structured in having uh, various uh, uh, industries and, 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 and representatives uh, to ensure a full and open um, uh, uh, debate and design. I have to say, I think that um, I, I received more than I gave. And uh, that's, that's uh, part of what I gave was only informed after I received. Uh, and it wasn't, uh, I don't think that I was um, uh, uh, set up uh, to uh, provide value to that committee uh, uh, to that informed the standard on day one. I think I was always a little bit, and, and accountants typically, typically do this, um, I was always a day or two behind. So I felt that my value lagged everyone else's because I was uh, collecting and receiving everyone else's knowledge before I formulated my own uh, thoughts or opinions. And, and I think that I hope that worked uh, for, uh, for the committee. Uh, it certainly uh, uh, worked uh, for me in the, whatever contribution uh, I brought. Uh, but uh, like any group uh, setting, I felt that uh, the, the committee members were, were so engaged, so committed, but at the early onset, um, I, uh, uh, it was very apparent to me that 
the committee and when we came together as a group, it was very apparent that um, we had to have fun, that this was not going to be show up at whatever time in the morning and go through the motions of developing this standard. And, you know, it was very, uh, very formal in its nature. Um, we were a group of individuals that felt once the end of the day came and our work wasn't finished for that day, but we felt we had to come together as a group and enjoy each other's energy, personality, backgrounds uh, at a very social or more intimate level in order to uh, uh, affect the next day's discussions. And I think because we as a group uh, came together so closely uh, uh, throughout the journey of developing the standard was uh, a significant part of the success of the standard at the end of the day. You know, Chuck, what you just described is what the ideal psychologically healthy and safe team or organization would look like, right? That we work hard, that we're passionate about what we're doing, but that we know each other in a way that we respect, support, and and really root for each other to be successful, that it's not a competition, but uh, we're all in this together. We have each other's backs. So it's, it's interesting that the group that did the work to create the standard lived the principles of it. Yeah, and, and, and in, a, in, any, in any other forum, Marianne, uh, you will recall in any other forum, the, the different uh, groups of representatives that we had were um, in, in, uh, uh, in general forums somewhat adversarial to one another. There is private sector, public sector. There is management union. And um, it was so healthy to understand each other's, I will say, position from a constituency perspective that it, the conversations were never, never even uh, 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 started down a path of disrespect. They were always at the highest level of respect. And uh, if it was uh, the individuals from labor, if it was the individuals from private sector, from the insurance sector, from the public sector, both at a provincial and uh, a federal level, uh, I think that everyone felt comfortable and equally vulnerable to offer their own views and comments, be it personal or constituency based, which only helped inform uh, at the end of the day. And I go back to, I remember, um, I may have the number wrong, but I think it was somewhere in the 800 or close to 900 comments we received back from public consultation. And we had, uh, 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 we had a little bit of uh, uh, an informal side bet among a number of, of people in regard to how much feedback we would get. And some people felt it would be you know, plus or minus 100. Other people felt it'd be plus or minus 10. And I think there wasn't anyone in the room that anticipated the level of uh, feedback that we received. And I think before we even went into that feedback, understanding the confidence that we had with 
in different sectors across the country with that level of engagement was a very proud moment for the, the technical committee individually and as a collective. Yeah, yeah, I think that was one of the moments when I realized, which I don't think most people do in the moment, is that we were making history. And, and that, that, that many people took the time to review and comment um, meant to me that what we were doing was important. And, you know, there's another time that I think about, and it goes back to what you were saying, Chuck, and it was uh, Martin Shane. Yeah. And we had done a vote on something and it, you know, the majority said one way and Martin said, well, just a minute, I am not comfortable with the fact that our three representatives with labor are all against this and that we would just push it through disregarding their um, issues. And so the conversation opened up again we found um, a compromise and a way to have uh, consensus and we move forward. And I remember feeling so proud at the time that we didn't just, you know, push forward. We didn't just say too bad, so sad, you know, we're not listening. We had a vote, that's it. We opened it up and we really got their view. And I was saying, cause we're opening the standard up again um, now and saying that this balance matrix that the Canadian Standards Association has, has so much value in not allowing any one interest group to dominate. And I know a lot of people will say, well, it was the commission's standard, thinking that the commission bought it, that right. they told them what to do, and that's not true. It was a consensus uh, process where the standard was done for the greater good of everyone. And the commission has been the champion and the cheerleader from day one, but uh, it's not their um, words. It really was that process. Yeah, and I think uh, you make an excellent point in that. I think um, as um, we continue our work uh, around psych health and safety, I think uh, um, the, the the um, commitment of uh, the diverse network uh, that informed the development of the standard uh, has to be uh, uh, built into the key messages, again, to show that it isn't uh, a standard that was built by its funders. It isn't a standard that was built by who housed the standard. Uh, and it wasn't a standard that was particularly favorable to one sector versus uh, another. It was a, 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 a true uh, balanced uh, uh, approach. Uh, and and um, I think that we can, uh, we, can, can, we can and should continue to leverage that uh, in, uh, in the days and years ahead. Mm -hmm. So Chuck, we worked on the technical committee. The standard was released in 2013. Um, what in your world has happened since then? Well, you know, in, in, in my world since then, of course, going back to that sort of, I, I break up different, different life events, if it's career, personal, and others in that sort of three, four, five year timeframes. And I think that, that helps me bucket 
bucket memories and uh, uh, achievements and challenges and so on, and helps inform your next three to four to five years. And I think um, uh, in uh, 2015, so uh, throughout the, uh, the, the early days of the standard and uh, the, the work uh, that I think many technical committee members um, uh, embraced uh, around um, uh, early adopters. Uh, and if you remember, if you remember those challenges, uh, and now, now we can look at those with a smile on our face uh, and, and sort of a chuckle, but at that time it was uh, uh, certainly uh, an uphill challenge uh, to, to have organizations come in as early adopters. And Marianne, if I, if I remember correctly, I think uh, the, 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 the greatest reason of that uh, was that organizations felt that they would be exposed uh, and exposed prematurely with respect to what they're not doing. And I know uh, that, again, we spent considerable energy uh, in those early days of helping organizations profile what they are doing. And if I remember using the analogy of a race, and if there's 10, <coughs> pardon me, if there's 10 steps in the race, many organizations through their own uh, 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 insurance and benefit programs and internal policies are already at that sort of three, four, or five. And when tested with a number of organizations, I think uh, we built confidence uh, with different organizations that they were at a three, four, or five, and that this was more based on continual improvement that every organization should practice every day, and we as individuals should practice every day. Uh, how to continuously improve our lives. And, and um, I think that uh, those early days since the standard was formally adopted and the early days of adoption, um, I think uh, I uh, extremely enjoyed the energy that I had then uh, to put into, um, uh, I will say, marketing the standard in with the constituents uh, that I had at the time that were specifically uh, 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 public sector and labor. And I take particular um, uh, 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 enjoyment uh, in uh, the uh, confidence uh, that was gained on the labor side uh, back in those days uh, to take action as employers and not as employee representatives. And uh, that uh, only informed then the opportunity for them to engage with their public sector employers to say, hey, we're doing this as an employer, you should too. And in, uh, uh, in Nova Scotia specifically, uh, that had considerable success uh, that I would like to think uh, resonated to other jurisdictions uh, to varying degrees across the country. Since uh, 2000, sort of 15, 16, uh, as you know, uh, I've uh, changed uh, gears from a, a professional perspective and uh, now uh, lead uh, a pension investment and administration organization um, uh, as their uh, CEO. Um, when I started in uh, 2016, it was a new organization with a blank sheet of paper uh, operating only on the basis of an agreement between unions and uh, uh, government. Uh, as uh, planned sponsors. 
and uh, I had the opportunity and challenge uh, to return to Newfoundland and Labrador to build uh, this organization from the ground up, uh, which to me is an exciting thing to do, terrifying for others, something that I run to and not from. And so I've had, I will say, in some respects, uh, from a professional perspective on a daily basis, less time to devote to psych health and safety in the workplace, uh, as I had in the previous five years. Um, but um, uh, with that said, uh, I've uh, also continued uh, my, uh, to, to lend my time uh, with the Mental Health Commission, and that keeps me regularly engaged um, uh, on, on, on a, an, I'll say a very regular basis um, uh, in, 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 in mental health discussions in general uh, across the country in, in its work, uh, but, but also with a particular affection, again, to um, uh, uh, workplace uh, and a particular affection uh, to, uh, to, to youth. Uh, so in the last five years, my, my shift in focus has changed, but um, I have uh, uh, now sort of four years into our new organization, um, we are as an organization uh, placing a particular focus around uh, mental health in the workplace or psych health and safety uh, and looking at now that we have transitioned as an organization and we have, I will say, the right foundation, we have the right building blocks, now's the time to introduce uh, more, uh, 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 more commitment uh, to uh, that area of our business. And, and I have to say that it is equally informed by our short life that's less than five years. I'm reminded on a regular basis that about 40% of our time as an organization has been spent in a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so, so that brings a, a completely different perspective uh, to, 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 um, uh, uh, to the role. And that's a little, that's a little um, uh, a peek uh, through uh, uh, my time uh, and energy over the course of the last five or six years. So Chuck, there's CEOs all across the country who are dealing with the pandemic, are dealing with supply chain issues, are dealing with um, talent recruitment and retention, are dealing with um, a changing economy. And we're saying to them, well, you should pay attention to psych health and safety. And you know how challenging that can be when there's everything else going on. What would be your advice to CEOs in particular who are saying, of course, I want to do the right thing, but there's so many things that I need to do. So um, <clears throat> I think um, first and foremost, um, you know, I have, um, uh, I'll say three, three professional passions. Uh, one, uh, one uh, I'll say uh, uh, related to mental health, uh, uh, one uh, related to uh, good governance, uh, and another uh, related to uh, retirement security. And I think um, uh, it's, uh, I go back to about a year ago, I was asked to sit on a panel uh, of my peers in the pension investment and administration industry. Uh, and um, 
at the end of the panel, um, uh, um, uh, the, the one question the, the, the moderator asked was, what's keeping you up at night? And uh, there were three individuals on the panel and two uh, of uh, uh, my panel uh, 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 colleagues uh, highlighted uh, things specific to markets, capital markets, the reaction to uh, capital markets in, in, uh, uh, as a result of the pandemic, um, uh, inflation, uh, and so on. And I felt that I happened to have the opportunity to go last. And I felt that they had captured that very eloquently and very concise. And I took a completely different path. And uh, my one statement was um, mental health of my employees and, and their families. And this generated uh, more questions uh, that, than, than the other two combined. And I had about a dozen people follow up with me uh, after uh, uh, that session and said, you know, that, that took, me, took me off off guard. I wasn't expecting that to come from you. And can you tell me more about that? And it gave me an opportunity to open the conversation and talk about my experience and continued uh, work uh, in uh, mental health across the country. And I think, so first and foremost, that's a long way of getting back to your question of what would I tell CEOs? Uh, and I think first and foremost, um, uh, specifically coming out of this pandemic, I think organizations are at risk. And there's one word that um, uh, a CEO does not want to hear, uh, and that's at risk, uh, or two words. And I think that organizations engagement, recruitment, retraction, and, and retention is at risk in addition to the products and services that they deliver. Um, if leadership uh, is not engaged in the conversation uh, around uh, mental health uh, of their employees uh, and psych health and safety within their organizations, uh, I full stop. Uh, every conversation I have with my peers in the industry or outside of the industry at my level um, is a message that I give both as a CEO and both in my capacity as chair of the board of the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Uh, and so first and foremost, uh, it's understanding uh, uh, your organization uh, is at risk. Second, uh, closely related to that is take a pulse of the organization. Uh, it's a very basic way to get a sense of where your employees are, the services that you provide that are working versus are not working. And for those that may be concerned about an expense line, there is such a vast array of complementary services at no cost available in the Canadian marketplace. Marianne, you are uh, someone that has uh, had a hand in, I'm not going to begin to count what resources, but the resources that are available, you have been a leader across this country in making those available to every uh, size and industry of organization in the country. That's number two. And I think number three, take a look inside your own self and your own circle of friends, family, colleagues, and uh, understand uh, that this is not about a one in four. This is not about a one in five. That your children, your siblings, your parents, your colleagues, 
your, 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 your extended family. There are people within that circle that were struggling pre-pandemic, continue to struggle during the pandemic. And I have a significant concern about the after effect of the pandemic, especially with youth and those that have been working remotely. Uh, it's, it's, I think, easy to look at organizations that are implementing these hybrid workplaces uh, or full at home work from home. And I think in our early days of the advisory committee, uh, and, uh, it's now coming back to me again, uh, that um, uh, uh, we uh, spoke and the development of the standard. What about those individual contractors that are working at home in their home office day in, day out? We didn't, we didn't pay a significant amount of attention to that because we felt that it was a small subset of the working population. Well, boy, weren't we wrong when we factor in COVID and now the amount of individuals that are working uh, from their kitchen table or their home office that isn't set up properly from an ergonomics perspective and or a mental health perspective, we have uh, 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 men and women that are balancing parental responsibilities in addition to child or elder care responsibilities. And I think post-pandemic, keeping a, this hybrid workforce or full at-home workforce without the right protocols in place to support uh, our employees is going to have a significant impact on engagement culture uh, and ultimate uh, 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 achievement and productivity. So those, those would be, I'll say my top three in, um, um, uh, in looking forward. That's great, that's great. And this is a, a good place to wrap up and to thank you, Chuck, for sharing all of your experience on this long and winding road and uh, to say that these things that you're just talking about, funny enough, we started working on before the pandemic. And so many of the resources and information about independent professionals working from home, hybrid teams, um, we do have available now. So uh, that you're saying to CEOs pay attention and uh, don't just uh, let this be another extension without thinking about how to do it in a psychologically safe way. So, Absolutely. yeah. So thanks Thank again, you. Chuck. The whole video will be on Flourish DX's YouTube channel, but we'll take little short clips from your most brilliant statements and <laughs> share those on LinkedIn and social media. And I also invite um, anybody who wants to connect over LinkedIn to ask uh, more questions or follow up with this conversation about all the brilliance that Chuck shared uh, to do that. So thank this, you, this Chuck. Is, this has been an excellent way to spend an hour and a half. And uh, uh, in, in closing, uh, in addition to a thank you, uh, and I'm glad we had an excuse to reconnect. Uh, I think that uh, your reference to uh, long and winding road, um, I hope the, the road continues to wind. Uh, and that you can't see too far ahead because it's great to be visionary and plan for the future, but I think we can only plan so far. 
And if you, I go back to that 2013-15 timeframe, who would have thought we would have had the experience that we've all had in the last two years? Uh, so so it's, it's, it's great to plan, but also be somewhat fluid or flexible uh, in how um, uh, we all move forward in that uh, there will be turns in the road that we have to adapt to. So thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Chuck. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.